Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Emma Ajimang and Taha Lokhandwala, Personal Finance Writer and Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Nick Greenwood, Manager of Mighton Global Opportunities. Nick, Mighton Global Opportunities is a fund of investment trusts, but what kind of investment trust does it invest in, and what's its investment objective? The investment objective is basically to beat cash. The trust started life in 2004 as a, a fairly typical fund of funds, but what it's evolved into is a special situations deep value investor. And therefore, I'm looking for trusts that are trading on deep discounts that have fallen off the radar. You said that its objective is to beat cash, specifically three-month LIBOR plus 2% over the longer term. Isn't this relatively easy considering that you're investing in much higher growth assets than cash? Um, in a bull market, it's very easy. And over the last 10 years, we've, we've, we've been in a bull market. The concept really comes from the day of um, closet tracking. Um, you go back maybe 10, 15 years, and Vodafone was 15% of the index or 14% of the peak. And the way that the industry worked, the fund manager, you'd ask a fund manager, what's the worst company in the FTSE? Well, the one you most likely think is going to fall. And they would reply, well, Vodafone. But their bearishness reflected they would have 10% of the portfolio in Vodafone um, because that was underweight the index. Uh, try explaining to somebody in the real world that, you know, if I was advising them, I'm going to put 10% into, of your life savings into the shares I think are going to fall the furthest. So what it was all about was getting away from rigid following indices that we only actually invest in a sort of personal type of way that you're trying to beat cash um, rather than trying to worry about what's in an index. And that is... That is, you know, we're only going to invest if we're going to make some money out of it. And therefore, LIBOR plus two is, is, is basically vaguely similar to having the money in the bank. Turning to the underlying holdings, um, a recent addition to Might and Global Opportunities is Sanditon mm. Investment Trusts. Um, can you tell us a bit about the trust and why did you add it? Mm. Well, Sanditon is a boutique fund manager um, with some fairly well-known fund managers that set up about three or four years ago. Uh, They've been quite bearish, and therefore that's that's not that's meant they've not had a great start, um, and the market has really given up on them, and the the investment trust has has fallen to around ATP, um, having traded around 106, 107 a year ago. Um, I think when you're looking at bond yields rising, um, asset prices are predicated on exceptionally low interest rates, and we may be getting to a period of um, synchronised global growth um, that will put upward pressure on on interest rates. Um, that will make life much more difficult for for equities, and it will be, given their bearish and defensive mindset, it will be a, um, a happier hunting ground for them going forward compared to what's gone on in the past. So it's uh, it's a bit of a toehold. It's only a small position, and we're going to see them in a week or two's time to, to get an update. Um, there's a lot of skills there. It's just they've 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 had the wrong market position over the last year or two, and the market has now got to the point where. They've given up and, and a lot of people have sold into the market and driven the price down to a, to a discount. Um, what does Sanditon actually invest in and, and who's the manager that you um, Tim Russell is the manager day to day. But you've also got people like Chris Rice there who was, who was at Casanova. It's basically a long short fund, um, but he also interestingly owns 20% of Sanditon itself. So if Sanderson were to turn things around and become successful, you've got a bit of hidden value there in the, in the, in the big stake in the manager. And we've seen, of course, Lintzel Train, for example, when that happens and, 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 and when they get their act together, the, the asset value or the, or the equity value of a fund management group can go up very, very quickly. 
another recent addition is Henderson Opportunities Trust. Uh, what was your reason for this? We're looking at smaller smalls of, at, the, at the bottom end of the of the UK stock market. Um, it's very difficult. The pots of money are getting ever bigger, and it's very difficult for a lot of fund management groups to um, invest in companies with market caps of 100, 200, 300 million. You know, Henderson Opportunities is an all-cap fund, but it has a lot of smaller smalls in it. I think that um, as the economy picks up, a lot of these small companies that are unloved by the city um, – will be bought by real-world investors. So if you imagine you're, you're, you're looking at a very small company that, because it's so small and the city can't invest in it, um, with a market value of, say, 100 million, um, a PE of eight or nine uh, and a yield of five, but growing, you know, maybe you're the, the biggest cake decorations manufacturer in Britain or something like that. Um, at some point, the real world comes in and takes those assets on the cheap. Uh, and the UK is, is pretty hated at the moment. It's one of the worst performing markets um, in the world. And therefore, discounts are, are becoming much um, much more extreme. And hence, opportunities you can quite often buy on a 20% discount at the moment. Deeply unloved. Picking up on that point, though, are you not concerned about having UK exposure in view of this country's departure from the European Union next year, especially UK smaller companies, as these are typically more exposed to the domestic economy, which could be in trouble? Mm. I think that's been now increasingly reflected in the price. And actually be quite surprised how uh, small the UK exposure is, even in UK smaller companies. We had a small cap manager in yesterday who reckoned the, the UK turnover in his portfolio was 20%. I think in some of our own funds, um, it's nearer 50%. So the damage is not as big as, as you would perceive. You perceive it as being pretty well all all UK. Um, the reality is that even relatively small companies are big companies in the real world and do a lot of overseas business. And I think a lot of those concerns are now reflected in the in the ability to buy something like Henderson Opportunities, for example, on a big discount. Interesting, because you associate the uh, FTSE 100 of international mm. earnings, but uh, turn to another um, area that's perceived as high risk, the mining sector. You've recently increased your exposure to it. But as I said, it's considered to be high-risk area. So why have you wanted to add this supposedly risky area to the portfolio? They're quite specific ideas or quite specific themes. Um, part of our mining exposure is uranium and nuclear power um, isn't used as much as perhaps it was in the past in, in Europe, certainly post the, uh, the disaster in, in Fukushima. But it's interesting that I think in 2017 there were more nuclear power stations came online than ever, any other year in history. Um, over the last year or two, basically, there's been 20% more uranium burned in the industry than is mined. The price is incredibly low. And it's the old cliche in mining, the price for low prices is low prices. In other words, if take the case of uranium, no new mines are coming on tap. Old mines are, are being exhausted. Nobody's going to actually build a new mine unless they can get $80 an ounce. The market price is 20 21 22 um, and therefore, we'll suddenly, a year or two out, get a, 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 a gap higher in the price of uranium because there will be a shortage. And bear in mind that steadily increasing the number of nuclear power stations in the world from around 400 at the moment to maybe 600 in, in, a, in, a, in a few years' time. Principally, that's places like China um, and India, where it's core to their, their, their energy plans. But also, the states are building six or seven new nuclear power stations. Uh, and even here in the UK, we, we're, we're sort of tentatively building one ourselves. Okay, so which investment trusts are you using to get exposure to the mining sector? Well, Geiger Counter for the uranium. Uh, the other one is Baker Steel, which is more private equity in the mining sector. So they're involved in taking um, 
mining prospects and getting them um, built out. And you know, so, so they're a little bit like the property developer who sees an interesting site, gets planning permission on it, buys maybe one or two bits of that site, gets planning on the rest of it, and then, but don't actually have any money themselves. They do the technical stuff and then sell the whole project on to a developer. Um, Baker Steel does that. I mean, their, their, their big project at the moment is a silver mine in Russia, um, where they're just in the process of selling it to a, to a FTSE 250 company. And they will get royalties, and I believe um, they will get between 2 and 4% of all the revenue from the mine. Um, when this mine gets going, it will be one of the largest silver mines in the world. And relative to a small investment trust with a market cap of 50 or 60 million, that sum of money could be quite large, but just not reflected in the net asset value. So our views are quite specific. Um, we are getting a bit of a, a synchronised global growth, which will be good for the mining sector. And we have bought a few shares recently in City Natural Resources, which is deeply unloved. Um, there was a change of management there two or three years ago, uh, and uh, it doesn't have much of a fan club. And you can often buy these shares at a 20% discount. And if the fundamentals are beginning to look better for the sector as a whole, um, you know, we'll get a modest rise in NAV and a narrowing of the discount. And the combination of that is very powerful. Turning to things that perhaps you're not so keen on, um, you recently reduced your holding in Pantheon International, which is a private equity investment trust. And the reason you gave um, in a recent commentary was because the US dollar had weakened. But might not sterling weaken as the EU exit approaches? And is there also not value in having investments that derive their revenues from outside the UK as there might be a slowdown here? Mm-hmm. Um, the private equity world has been incredibly successful in raising capital. I think um, there's a figure of 1.7 trillion of um, dry powder out there. Now, what dry powder is, when you wake up, an institution makes a a commitment, say I was the manager of the South Carolina Teachers Pension Fund, and I make a commitment to Apollo's latest fund. It's unlike buying an open-ended fund or a unit trust or an OIC. Uh, I make a commitment. They then go away and buy the companies and then call the money off me. So they've raised this vast sum, $1.7 trillion, which needs to be invested. And therefore, that market's got incredibly hot and the price is being paid are very high because they must invest that money. Um, otherwise, next time there's a, a funding round and they'd ha- they haven't allocated money from the last funding round, nobody will give them any money. So there is an element of desperation. Now, if you look at a fund like Pantheon, it's got a very mature portfolio. Um, and it's and therefore right for selling into this market, into the mother of all sellers market. So what we expect is the NAV to, to keep rising. But I think now the market is focusing on concerns about how successful the industry will be at spending the money and a concern that any money that's being spent at the moment, it's going to be difficult to see how it could be profitably invested at this point of the curve. So the reduction of Pantheon comes partly that um, I think that recognition, you know, we've had been had a nice rise in the NAV. I think that it's just increased concern. I don't think the discounts will narrow because of that concern, but we'll get a little bit further rise in the NAV. But the changes of the tax rules, you know, the, the in, in the states and the reduction of tax rates, I think will undermine the dollar. And Pantheon is a fairly f- pure player on on the dollar, so we we halve the position. Okay, um, so well, I mean, that's one investment trust. What's your feeling about um, private equity investment trusts in general? Are you um, are you concerned on on the others? Well, what we've done is we've focused the portfolio on funds in liquidation. So a good example, we've done Eden Enterprise, which had had a bad run. The board decided to put it into an orderly realisation of the assets, and they've been trading on a big discount, but also selling assets and handing us money back at NAV. And the beauty there is that they're fully exposed to selling into the 
you know, mother of all buyers' markets or sellers' markets, should I say, uh, not being in the position of some of the evergreen funds like Pantheon having to reinvest that money at, at, at high levels. So that money is flowing back. So a year ago would have typically had something in the region of 20% in private equity. Today, the figure is about 13 because we've halved our holdings of the, of the evergreens, which is Standard Life European and Pantheon. But we've had a lot of money flow back from the likes of Dunedin Enterprises. They've liquidated assets and handed us back the cash. Um, picking up on your point about investment risk and wind down, um, as I understand, about half of Mighton Global's opportunities, sorry, about half of Mighton Global opportunities holdings are investment trusts winding down. Mm-hmm. Why do you like investment trusts and wind down? Well, sadly, the uh, the most common exit from the portfolio is the end of the trust itself. If you look at uh, the portfolio we had last year, uh, you know, at one point the average discount was thirty percent. So you are buying. Um, perfectly good funds at 70 pence in the pound. Now, unfortunately, if you're on a 30% discount, you are vulnerable to attack. You know, investment trust is structured like an industrial company, one share, one vote. So if you've got a pound's worth of assets trading at 70p, it's perfectly possible for a a US ARB or an activist investor to come in and buy enough shares to force the fund into liquidation. And of course, once that happens... Um, you know, if you've bought 70 pence in the pound, there will be a cost of winding down the fund. But, you know, no movement in the underlying portfolio can, can turn 70p into, say, 95. So seeing situations that are vulnerable to being forced into liquidation is quite profitable. You also said earlier this year that if bond yields rise and create market upheaval, it might throw up some interesting new opportunities. Mm. Has this happened? And um, what opportunities could this create? Hasn't happened yet. There is a There is a... A tipping point somewhere out there if, if you know, growth in, in the global economy forces interest rates up to a certain level, somewhere investors will go back to conventional sources of income. They won't be so starved of income. They won't keep having to buy aircraft leasing companies to try and get some, some yield. Um, and I think when that happens, um, there'll be some steep falls in some of the, uh, the alternative income specialist trusts, um, not because anything's gone particularly wrong in the portfolio, but because the demand structure changes. Which one specifically? Well, we're doing a lot of work on the infrastructure funds, for example. Right, which were on high premiums. Yeah, we're on high premiums, trading on small premiums at the moment. Mm. Um, I don't know what the latest figure, I think they peaked at something like 18 billion at at one point. That's come back a lot. But the interesting point here is that if people go back to conventional sources of income, um, there'll be fewer buyers of these trusts. Now, over the last three or four years, um, when the market's been in, in... not being in equilibrium, there'll be more buyers and sellers. The simple way of getting the market back into equilibrium is just to issue more shares. Now, I think when that goes into reverse, um, you could see some very, very steep falls in these shares because, you know, let's say the sector's 14 or 15 billion now, but it takes a very small amount of that to feed back into the market to overwhelm the, the clearing mechanism for investment trusts. So if there's even a, you know, I mean, if you were to say that five basis points of this 0.05 percent of the sector is seeping back into the market every day that's you know, that's a figure of five six seven million pounds a day which the investment trust sector probably can't mop up before the share prices fall you know an investment trust share price is decided by the balance of supply and demand in the market so there are more sellers than buyers the shares have to fall until the, that gets into equilibrium and the problem here is the numbers are so big and the capacity to trade investment trusts is relatively small, um, the results could be quite spectacular, and you could get a plunge mm-hmm. in these shares. What that will do is attract 
other types of investor because they will come and have a look and you know life companies um would be ideal holders of um of, of of some of these infrastructure funds but i can see a lot of displacement in the market coming in 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 the not too distant future and what might you go for well is it a good place obviously but um yes i mean yeah. we would look at probably some of the majors hickle inpp would be um would be a couple of them so nothing we're not doing anything um sophisticated we're just looking at some of the better known names and they'll be the ones hit because they're quite large is there anything else that's creating opportunities well the main opportunity comes from the consolidation of the wealth management industry going back not that many years the private client stockbroker was the natural buyer of investment trusts and the ifas used to be the natural buyer of 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 uh, unit trusts in the day um most of these private client stockbrokers we merge into the mega chains and to put it into context, we nearly had a merger last year between Rathbones and Smith and Williamson. Now, not, not just in our industry, but in all industries, if a company becomes vast, you can't really allow staff at the sharp end to use initiative because somebody somewhere will, will, will abuse that. So that would lead to greater model portfolios and these vast pots all being run in line. And to put it into context, 52 billion, if you believe that you need to have 1% of your portfolio in a position otherwise it doesn't make any difference it wouldn't really matter if the if 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 the holding doubled unless it's meaningful you know it's of it's de minimis so one percent of that pot is uh 500 million quid just a bit into context if you were to buying something like halfords which is probably near the bottom of the FTSE 250 might have a market value of 700 million you've almost got to buy every share in existence to get it into the portfolio so if you think read across into investment trust, the traditional buyers need they don't no longer have the confidence they can buy enough shares in investment trust to allocate across all their clients in one go. And therefore the natural buyers are gone. If you have a listed security like an investment trust, there are more sellers and buyers, share prices have to keep falling until we get into equilibrium. Again, it's and creates these mispricings. And and there again it's this you know, it's this consolidation of the wealth management industry that's creating disruption in supply and demand which is creating opportunities for us any particular examples that you'd want to single out i mean the whole portfolio really is 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 that's the most common reason and that's the most common opportunity so uh difficult to single out a single name in terms of things you don't like so much are there any areas you're avoiding and you know are there any particular risks that you're concerned about i think the, 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 the main concern as we touched on is the alternative income stocks mm. they're very vulnerable to uh, to change in interest rates um and there's so much complacency in the market at the moment we've had you know 10 years of extraordinary low interest rates and you know if if you say in fund management um your average fund manager gets his first fund or her first fund between the ages of um 28 and 35 if you joined the city just after the last crash in 2008 um and you've done an undergraduate degree and you had a year out um you'd now be 32 33 and in a senior position yet you've until recently you hadn't even seen an interest rate rise let alone a cycle and i think we've got that kind of complacency inbuilt into the market so that when the market cycle changes, the reaction may be more dramatic than we've seen in previous cycles. You are, I suppose, mainly a fund of investment trust, but do you ever put your money into um, other types of funds or investments? Rarely. We do have the permission um, to use open-ended funds. And that the idea there is we can, if we've got a macro view we wanted to populate, uh, we could use an open-ended fund. Do you have and any at the moment? The only one we've got at the moment is Perpetual Japan. Um, historically, the quality of investment trust available in Japan has not been great. You've basically had a choice of um, investing in a, in, a, in, a, in a fund that may not um, uh, perform terribly well, or you try and buy Bailey Giffords funds, which have performed very well, but always trade on an enormous premium. Um, Perpetual Japan, 
they do we got to know them well because they had an investment trust back in the day uh, in fact it well invest the year it got shot because it went to a big discount and active investors closed it down it uh, it won posthumously the best japanese investment trust of the year so we know the team quite well from that era and it's 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 a way of building some exposure to japan um without having to uh, to invest in some of the weaker funds that are available. Or pay a premium to NAV. Or pay a, a vast premium. Uh, Funnily enough, over the years, uh, with 2020 hindsight, it's always been right to uh, to pay a big premium for uh, for Bailey Gifford, but uh, I've never managed to do that. Or bring myself to do it, shall we say. Yeah. Investment trusts, we cover a lot of areas, but are there any particular assets or sectors that they aren't so good for providing access to? Well, I think the very biggest... Um, end of the of the equity market um, you know the, the the real strength of an investment trust is the protection from inflows and outflows and when you get turns in the market um, and a fund is is, is hemorrhaging cash um, the manager gets forced to sell uh, what he can rather than what he wants to which by definition is not what you want to sell but that protection is less important in the big liquid markets so the top end of the FTSE or funds that just buy large UK equities, for example, um, the structure doesn't add much to, as much to the equation as it does for most other asset classes. What about bonds, though? Let's be honest. I mean, this didn't really get good access to bonds by investment. No, for, for historical reasons, there was um, a tax disadvantage in investing in fixed interest um, through a closed-ended fund. That's gone, but there hasn't really been... Uh, I mean, there, there are all sorts of alternative income funds developed, but we've, you know, for historical reasons, there haven't been um, investment trusts investing in government securities, and for whatever reason, they haven't evolved since, even though that, that impediment has been removed. OK, and are there any areas um, that you would love to access but aren't covered by investment trusts? Well, I, I tend to sort of work the other way around and looking at investment trusts to invest in rather than taking a pure macro scene. So I can't think of it. I'm sure there are there are occasions when I think, well, that would be interesting, but there isn't there isn't a vehicle. But uh, I can't think of one situation off the top of my head. Now, at the end of January, you had about 8% of um, Might and Global Opportunities assets in cash. Mm. Is it still at this level? Uh, well, it goes up on, on Monday because my largest holding, Taliesin, which is a... Berlin residential landlord um, is in the process of being acquired by by Blackstone, and we'll get the cash coming in there, which was nine percent. So that eight percent had had drifted down to around five, mm-hmm. um, but it'll go back up to fourteen uh, percent on Monday. It's it's really just a case of a lot of things have come to fruition. I'm yeah. slightly cautious, but there's lots of things I'm buying. But it's uh, but some of the more successful investments are are maturing, and uh, and the cash is coming in. We're also issuing shares on a fairly regular basis. We we issued some more yesterday, so we. Unusually for an investment trust, we've got cash inflows coming into the fund as well. Okay, and have, have you got any exciting things lined up to put the uh, taliesin proceeds well, into? Uh, no, I'm not not going to put nine or ten percent into <laughs> the fund into a new idea. I mean, uh, one area that's quite interesting because we have quite a vibrant market in closed-ended funds in the UK. Um, a number of funds from around the world are moving their listings to the UK. So we've recently been buying a thing called Stenprop, for example, which is a Johannesburg-listed property play. It used to itself be largely invested in the Berlin property market, but the portfolio has been recently focused on in mixed industrial units in the UK, which is an area where very little supply is coming on, on board because if you built one new, the rent wouldn't be enough to justify the cost. There's demand for that, you know, from, from, from light industry for those sorts of units, but there's no supply coming on because um, a lot of people are just um, knocking these things down and building houses because you make a, a quicker short-term profit. 
Um, the listing, we've been buying it in Johannesburg, but the listing, the intention is to move the listing to the UK. And there are a number of other things in the pipeline as well. There's another thing that hopefully will go into the portfolio beginning next week, which is currently Luxembourg listing. Um, typically, these things trade on vastly higher discounts than the stuff that's already here. And if we can get them and help them to actually explain the story to, 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 the, to the UK investing public, we would hope the discounts will narrow quite sharply once they get here. Thank you, Nick. A really interesting insight into the investment trust universe. Not at all. Emerging markets have had a great run over the last two years. But when a market does well, a key question for investors is whether it can continue. However, determining this is easier said than done. Taha, what do investors need to consider when trying to evaluate what the prospects are for emerging markets? Well, you know, the key thing here is to remember that no two emerging markets are the same. The performance seen in the past couple of years has been quite focused, mainly from the large technology stocks such as Samsung and Alibaba, but also in Latin America, where reform in Brazil has really pleased investors. So when allocating, you need to realise that what bought performance in one year might entirely change the next, as emerging markets are so diverse. OK, so bearing this in mind, can the good run in emerging markets continue? The general consensus on this is yes. The factors that brought the returns recently, such as the growth in technology and the economic recovery in key countries like Brazil, they don't really show any signs of slowing down. Added to that, you have countries coming out of the oil and commodity slump that really hurt the area in the early part of this decade. In fact, most market commentators think that because of how badly emerging markets were hurt after 2012, they have a long way to rise upwards before reaching where they should be. Company earnings are still below average, as are valuations, according to most metrics. OK, I mean, that sounds all very rosy, but are there any reasons to believe that emerging markets might not do well? Well, the thing is with emerging markets is there are always concerns and risks. Uh, Capital Economics, which is an economic consultancy, has done some analysis, and what it thinks is the economic growth that we have seen, particularly in the last year, is running out of steam. In addition, the dollar always plays a huge part with emerging market fortunes. If that strengthens, which it isn't expected to do, but that can always change, then they might struggle. Also, emerging markets are always susceptible to political surprise, as we've seen in Brazil. This time around, it might come from the White House. As it stands, there's no way of knowing how badly tariffs and trade wars can affect emerging market companies, but it's almost safe to assume that it won't help. So, yeah, not all positive then. Are there any other risks you need to be aware of um, if you're thinking of investing in this area? Uh, Absolutely. Emerging markets are always more volatile than developed markets because there's a wider range of factors that can hurt or help them. So investors need to be aware of this and make sure that they can go along for what's probably going to be a bumpy ride. So if you do have the necessary risk appetite, then um, what might be a good way to get exposure to emerging markets at the moment? So Gary Greenberg's Hermes Global Emerging Markets Equities Funds is a standout for me. Mr. Greenberg has covered the space for a very long time and he knows the companies well. He likes the big quality companies that are just expected to grow and compound over time. Uh, Right now, his biggest holdings are companies like Samsung, Tencent, Alibaba. So he's exposed to the technology sector that has done very well and that is expected to do so in the future. Thank you, Taha. And see this week's big theme for the other funds positioned to capture the potential upside in emerging markets. The start of a new tax year in April means a new set of tax allowances, but this year it brings something rather unfelpful to investors as well. At present, the first £5,000 of dividend income that you earn is tax-free, but from the 6th of April, that allowance falls to 2000 Emma, what will be the tax treatment of dividend income above £2,000? It will depend on the income tax that you pay. So if you're a basic income tax payer and any dividend income you receive above £2,000 a year will be taxed at 7.5%. 
If you're a higher rated taxpayer, you'll be taxed at 32.5%. And if you're an additional rate taxpayer, you'll pay 38.1%. Okay, not so good then. Is this likely to affect a lot of investors? Yes, I think it will catch quite a lot of investors, actually. Because, for example, if you have a portfolio of around £55,000 or more, that is yielding, you know, a typical 3.5%, then you're likely to earn about £2,000 in dividends and a little bit more will take you into that tax bracket. So what can you do about it? I mean, the best thing that investors can do is just to use as much of their ISA allowance as possible. And remember this year and next tax year, the ISA allowance is £20,000. So you're, if you can put as much of your assets as possible within that, you can allow them to grow from free of tax on income or the interest on your assets. And you also don't have to pay um, capital gains tax if you sell assets within an ISA. Okay, so when you're looking to invest, do it within an ISA. But what about existing investments that you've already got that aren't in an ISA? Um, yeah, there's some strategies for that as well. So if you have existing assets held outside a tax-efficient wrapper, then you can use a process called bed and ISA. And this involves selling the assets you hold outside those tax wrappers and rebuying them within an ISA, making sure you don't crystallise gains worth and more the annual CGT allowance. And this tax year, the CGT allowance, capital gains tax, is £11,300. And next tax year, it's actually going to rise to £11,700. It's very generous. Yeah. I mean, the ISA allowance is generous. It's um, 20000 as you said, but... You know, some people have got large portfolios that have built up over years. Yeah. So what if you can't immediately get all your investments, you know, into your ISA using this year's allowance? I think the thing to do there is to prioritise those income producing assets and put them into the wrapper because that way they are going to be protected going forward on any dividend income and any interest. Um, so that's one way to consider it. Another thing is just to remember that, you know, we're approaching the end of this tax year on the 5th of April and we've got a new tax year starting on the 6th of April. So if you haven't added anything to your ISA already, you can actually put two instalments of £20,000 each into your ISA over the next couple of months spread across those two tax years. Some really helpful techniques there and also see this week's money section for her other tips on how to beat the dividend allowance cut. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on where to find value in emerging markets and how to beat the dividend allowance cut in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.